Good evening. Welcome to Calvary Church here in Brighton. My name's Ben. I'm going to be leading this evening and I do pray that wherever you are tonight, you'll be blessed and encouraged as you join us for this meeting. It's been a a difficult few months, uh, challenging in many ways and still looks like it's going to go on for some time. But we as God's people have the opportunity to hear his word and to sing his praises, even if we're doing it from our homes. And I hope tonight you'll join me and put aside this time to really focus our hearts upon God and to hear his word being spoken to us. It's not ideal. It's not what we really want, but it's what we've got. And we're we're grateful for it. And I pray tonight that God will bless this time together. And do join us if you can for our online prayer meeting on Wednesday evenings. It's so important that we as God's people should be praying in these days. We're going to sing two songs to start off with and some if you're new to to Christian things and not familiar with the Bible you might find some of the terminology and some of the ideas a bit strange but bear bear with it because they are songs based on important biblical truths about God. The first one is salvation belongs to our God. The words for this are taken from the book of Revelation which is many find a quite mysterious book but it, there's this wonderful picture of a great crowd of people from every nation praising God these are these are Christians these are believers and they, they cry out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb it's Revelation chapter 7. The lamb is a title for the son of God Jesus Christ the idea is that in the old Old covenant, in God's old arrangement with people, people had to sacrifice a lamb to take away sin. And Jesus, the New Testament tells us, is the greater lamb. He is the perfect spotless lamb. He's like this lamb that is sacrificed to save people from their sins. That's why he's called the lamb in his passage. And then in verse 12, people cry out, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's what this song is based on. It's a song of worship and a song of praise. And the second song is a new one, which Anya has recorded for us. It's called Who Am I? Beautiful song. And the words of this song ask the question, who am I that God should give me all these privileges? There comes a point in the life of every Christian where you, you just say to God, what is it about me? that you have chosen me, that you have saved me, that you have been so kind and gracious to me. Who am I to deserve this? And of course, we don't deserve this. There are times in the Bible when God's people ask him, who am I that I should deserve this? King David asked this question, I think it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. It is, he says, who am I, O sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? It's amazing that God has set his favour upon us. And this song acknowledges that, that wonderful thing. So please, please join me, join us in singing these songs. The words will be on the screen. And after, after that, we'll pray together. Who sits upon 
Let's pray. And tonight, as I pray, I'm going to be praying based on several verses from the Bible, which can help direct us in prayer at this time. So let's come and talk to God. Romans 5 says this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Lord, in these troubled days, we pray that you would give your people endurance and encouragement. Lord, we need it so much. We so easily find ourselves prone to becoming weary and discouraged, feeling like giving up perhaps. But you say, Lord, that you will provide encouragement for us from the scriptures and in that, in that way that we can't really describe it in our hearts, Lord, when you just lift us and cheer us and encourage us and strengthen us with the promises of God. We pray also, Lord, for this unity that, you, that is described in these verses as we follow Christ Jesus that we as people of God might declare with one mouth and one heart the praises of our God and our Saviour, Lord Jesus. I do pray for your people tonight, all over this city and beyond, who may feel really tired and perhaps emotionally low and spiritually low. We pray that you would encourage them and build them up. I also pray, Lord, in accordance with 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 which says this, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would, in this period, not be going backwards, not be stagnating, not falling into bad habits or falling out of good habits and disciplines. We pray, Father, that you would help us to grow in grace, that we would make progress in the Christian life, even in these times. We would spend time in your word and seeking your face together that you might refine your church and winnow your church and discipline your people and make us more holy and more like the Lord Jesus. Please do this work. I also want to pray in accordance with Hebrews chapter 6. Let me just turn it up. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 10 to 12. God is not unjust He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. In order to make your hope sure, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Thank you for this this promise in your word, this, this statement that you, God, are not unjust. And you will remember the love that's been shown to you through the service of your people. We thank you for the service in, in this church that we see as your people care for one another and minister to each other, encourage each other and bless each other. Please, Lord, would that only increase in days ahead, we pray. And help us, Lord, not to become lazy, but to, with, with this kind of perseverance and patience, Lord, to imitate those who have gone before us, Lord, who have... Walk with you in these days. Father, I also want to pray for those people who you are drawing to yourself at this time. I know for a fact, Lord, there are people that have had very limited exposure to the things of church and to the Bible. And yet, Lord, there seems to be a work in them that you are drawing them to yourself. A bit like Cornelius, the Roman soldier, 
who feared you and there was a sense that you were working in his life, but he still needed to hear the gospel. And you sent your servant to him to preach to him about the Lord Jesus, to tell him about the saviour who he readily accepted, he and all his family. And I pray for anyone listening to this tonight, Lord, who has been drawn by your spirit, who is receiving the gift of new life and faith in Jesus, that you would continue that work in them, that you would make things clear to them. I pray that you would draw alongside them people like Aquila and Priscilla, who drew alongside Apollos and taught him more adequately, better, the way of God, so that he might teach and understand things more clearly. I pray for those people, Lord, that you would keep them and bring them to Christian maturity. Please bless our service tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. going to read tonight our main reading, which is from Matthew 26. Matthew being one of the four Gospels, as they're called, one of the four books in the Bible which specifically talk, tell us about the life of the Lord Jesus, and what he did and what he said, and what happened to him. So we're doing a series in the book of Matthew. We're coming to the last few weeks of that series. And we're in Matthew 26. We'll read today from verses 57 to 68. So I'll just read this and I'll pray again and then we'll have a look at this. Jesus has just been arrested and he's been taken before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders. Let's read. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and said, sorry, and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, Messiah, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Let's pray. Lord, we see here, we read here in this passage about terrible things, unjust things, wicked things that happened to our Lord Jesus. All those centuries ago on that night the night he was betrayed, the night he stood before the court, the day before he hung on the cross, 
to save us from our sins. We read about cruelty and injustice and terrible things. We pray, Father, that you would help us now as we ponder these things to be moved in our spirits to appreciate more what the Lord Jesus went through on our behalf. We pray also, Lord, for anyone who is listening to this who is not yet sure where they stand with you, that you would open their hearts to receive the gospel, the good news, and that you would give them the gift of saving faith that they might be reconciled to you. And help me now as I bring the word to your people. Feed us, encourage us, and bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to talk about tonight is a tough thing to talk about. It's easy after all these years to try to read these stories, to hear these stories, and to become so familiar with them that you just lose something of the the impact of you know the terrible things that happened and the suffering that our Lord Jesus went through. But I do pray that as we, we come tonight, that the Lord, the Lord would help us to, to get a fresh sense of that. The, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, is a most wonderful thing. Very profound and amazing things were going on, but also very sad and, and traumatic things were going on at the same time. And I think we, we can only just begin to, to plumb the depths, to try to paddle in the shallows, to understand something of the depth of this ocean of the love and the grace of God expressed on the cross, at the cross of Jesus. Imagine, friends, if you were brought before the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, and you stood there as the accused, as a prisoner, bound before the court in the dock. And this court has the power to condemn you or to acquit you. This court is charged with upholding righteousness and justice in the land and you stand there and they can decide whether you live or die the judge and the jury have that power but the good news is that you are completely innocent of any crime and you know that you stand there before this court knowing that you have done nothing wrong you also know there's no evidence against you But imagine you stood before this court and it's immediately obvious that the judge and the jury have already decided what they want to happen to you. They've already decided that you must die, that you're worthy of death, that they want to execute you, bring the death penalty upon you. And for them, this court is not an exercise in seeking justice, seeking truth, but this is an exercise in trying to find a crime that will fit the punishment that they've already decided is yours. I want to ask you quite sincerely, is this, is there, could there be any situation really for a person worse than this, to be innocent but to know this court is already completely biased against you and is seeking your life? Well, I think probably for many people in the world, This is a reality. People do stand before these corrupt, unjust courts and are treated unjustly and illegally and are punished when they deserve to be acquitted. And so it happened 
all those centuries ago to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus, on that night as he stood before the hastily convened Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. They'd gathered together at the house of the high priest. There were different stages of this trial. It was late at night, and the Lord Jesus stood before them to be judged by these men. And as we pick up the story today, we see that this court was deliberately trying to find false witnesses in order to put Jesus to death because of their jealousy, because of their fear of him, because of his popularity, because of the words he spoke. They were seeking his life. That was the the outcome they desired. That was what they were aiming for when they convened this court. According to Jewish law, and you can look this up in in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 20, a very important principle was that no, no matter could be established apart from the testimony of one or two, I'm sorry, of two witnesses. There had to be more than one witness. If it would be all too easy for somebody to accuse somebody of a crime. That could be a malicious accusation, but there had to be two witnesses or more who could testify to this crime. That was embedded in the law of Israel. That was what this court should have been seeking. And in fact, they did make, make a pretense of seeking this, even though this court broke every rule in the book. Even though it was illegal, even though they were cutting corners, and even though they were, they were biased, full of hatred and bitterness, they still had a semblance of legality. They still pretended to be seeking these two witnesses in order to be able to condemn the Lord Jesus. We see, don't we, in this passage, it says, many false witnesses came forward in verse 60. So you had this whole load of people coming, one after the other, with these wild and fanciful, twisted stories about what Jesus was was supposed to have done, or what he had said. But even their statements didn't agree. It's hardly surprising because they were fabricated, they were twisted, they were made up. In Deuteronomy, it says very clearly that if somebody bears false witness, and it's proven that they've lied about a situation, they should be put to death, or they should receive the punishment that they wanted to bring upon the accused. It's also one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. But in this court situation, when these people accuse Jesus one after the other with these false, baseless accusations, have you noticed there was no attempt by the high priest and the Sanhedrin to question these men, to determine the truth of what they said? There was certainly no punishment meted out on them, no penalty for fabricating stories and making up lies about Jesus. This only goes to show, doesn't it, the rottenness, the corruptness, the wickedness of the, the ruling class, you know, of the Jews at the time of Jesus, who they would, would have been quite happy with falsehood in order to get the outcome they desired. And that shows how hypocritical and blasphemous this court was. It had no foundation in anything good or worthy or true. It was completely corrupt. But all these witnesses came forward to testify about Jesus And eventually we find out that two witnesses came forward. Verse 60, finally two came forward and declared 
This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Even if that were true, if Jesus had actually said these words, it would hardly be a reason for the death penalty, would it? Saying, I'm able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days is not the same as saying, I'm going to destroy the temple, or I'm planning to destroy the temple, like some kind of terrorist will blow up a famous building or destroy it. We find here, don't we, In Mark's gospel, in the same parallel account of this, in chapter 14, even their testimony did not really agree. You can look it up. So his testimony, his his version of this says that one witness claimed that Jesus said he would destroy the temple, the man-made temple after three days, and build another not made by man. So it was similar to the one we read about in Matthew, but it wasn't quite the same. It was near enough, but even their testimony did not agree. So where do they get this from? Well, I think the most likely explanation for this is that they they took the words of Jesus or misused or misheard the words of Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 19. So think back to this passage. The Jewish leaders, when Jesus had cleansed the temple, had asked him, what authority have you got to do this? What what miracle, what miraculous sign are you going to do to show us that you have the authority to cleanse the temple in this way? And Jesus answered them, perhaps We don't know, perhaps gesturing to himself. He says, destroy this temple, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. So have you noticed, Jesus never actually said, as far as we know, that he would destroy the temple or that he could destroy the temple. He says, destroy this temple. If you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. Never threaten to destroy anything. And John tells us, John gives an explanation. The temple he spoke of was not the temple in Jerusalem. It wasn't the temple made of stone and gold that Herod had built. But the temple was his body. It's a kind of parable. My body is the temple. If you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it again in three days. And these witnesses had heard these words, misheard them, twisted them, whatever, to make out that Jesus was some kind of terrorist or some kind of some kind of deluded man who who felt he had power that no human could possess. But Jesus was not talking about that. How how dangerous it is to mishear and to twist the words of Jesus. But even in this court setting, when men, wicked men, were planning to destroy this temple, to, to kill Jesus and ruin his body, there's a reminder that Jesus had promised that this death would not be the end of him that after three days he would rise from the dead. So we've got this ungodly rabble haranguing Jesus, falsely accusing him, wildly looking for an excuse, a pretext to execute him. But Jesus remains silent. It says that in verse 63. Jesus remains silent. What a holy dignity Jesus maintained. How difficult it is when people accuse you, especially when they falsely accuse you, to not defend yourself, to not curse them or shout back at them. In this cacophony of noise, amidst this cacophony, Jesus just stood there meekly, courageously. 
lovingly, with his holy dignity. He had no need to respond to these ludicrous claims. There was no evidence against him, no proper evidence at all. If he'd wanted to, Jesus could have mounted a magnificent defense, couldn't he? Of his character, of his godhood, of his, I mean, his deity, his, his calling, his messiahship. He could, have, he could have opened up the law and the prophets, and he could have spoken about the prophecies about him. He could have taught about his calling. He could have turned the tables on them. He could have shown the blasphemy of this court. He could have ex- exposed it and their wickedness and their sin. He could have done great miracles from heaven to validate his divinity. But it wasn't the time for that anymore. I, mean, I suppose he could have, as I said, he could have cursed the people. He could have shouted. He could have tried to protect himself, defend himself. He could have got on his knees and begged for mercy in the face of these, these powerful men, influential men. But he did none of those things. He, he stood there silent with his dignity intact. His beautiful, holy silence. Jesus knew that he had to go to the cross. This was the plan that he and his father had agreed upon. And he was obedient to the end. He wasn't trying to escape from this. He let events take their course. He committed himself to God. That famous chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, which is one of the most vivid prophecies of the suffering of our Saviour in the Old Testament, which we all know well, I'm sure, talks about this. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, speaking of God's holy and righteous servant who suffers as a sin offering, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb. There's that lamb reference again. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Amidst all this hatred and spite and confusion and and, and a cacophony of voices, Jesus stands there knowing full well what's going to happen and fully fully, um, accepting that as God's will. What courage he had and what dignity and what self-control not to save himself, not to lash out at his enemies, but to stand there before the court and allow things to happen as God had ordained I think the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, had probably never seen a prisoner like this before. I imagine most prisoners did try to defend themselves or they had people speaking up for them. Friends, perhaps there, who were willing to to speak on their behalf. But Jesus said no one. But he kept his, his silence. Seeing this was getting them nowhere. Nobody could pin anything on Jesus whatsoever. Nobody could accuse him. And make anything stick. The high priest probably getting quite frustrated. He evokes this this Jewish oath. You know, swearing an oath in the name of God. For any Jewish person this was. This was a massive thing to do. To swear in, in God's name. To swear falsely in God's name would have been the worst kind of blasphemy. And so he, he speaks to Jesus in verse 63. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. 
while he was being falsely accused, Jesus had no need to answer these, these pathetic and ridiculous accusations. But when he is confronted with somebody speaking the truth at last about his identity, about his calling, about his character, about his position, he feels compelled to answer. And so he does. And I, I, I imagine, I don't know, I imagine there was a moment's pregnant silence and then Jesus speaks in reply. Yes, it is as you say. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says, I am. Very loaded expression, I am. Yes, it is as you say. You can just imagine probably the horror on the faces of the Jewish council and those who are listening. In fact, the actual words, words Jesus says in the Greek are more, something more like, those are your words, or you have said so, rather than, yes, it is as you say. And I thought about this. It might sound a bit ambiguous to say, well, those are your words, or you have said so. Is Jesus saying here, is he being vague about his identity? Is he trying to fudge it? Is he trying to avoid a direct confession? Is he saying, well, actually, those, those are your words, not mine. I never said that. But no, it's not, that's not the case. You know, this is a common Greek technique that Jesus uses to put the words in the mouth of that person or just to say to that person, you yourself have said it. Your own lips have spoken the truth. He said the same thing with Judas. When Judas asked, is it I who is going to betray you? Jesus said, you yourself have said it. You have said so. So it's an affirmative thing. It's saying, yes, actually, you yourself have spoken the truth. It's also possible, I suppose, that the, the high priest and the Jewish leaders had a very earthly, worldly, unspiritual, political understanding of what the Messiah should be. And when he asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? He's thinking of this. And Jesus doesn't want to affirm this because he's not that kind of Messiah. And yet he cannot deny being the Messiah because he is. And so rather than openly confessing to this, he immediately takes their attention away from this idea of being a political Messiah. And he sets their focus right upon the kind of Messiah, the kind of divine son of God that he is. We read about about this in verse 64. But I say to all of you, In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, that's God, obviously, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Why did they react so violently to Jesus quoting this verse? Well, quoting from these verses from the Old Testament or alluding to these verses. How could anybody have objected to this? If he's talking about the Son of Man, as somebody else, they would have agreed with that, surely. Let's look at the first reference. The first reference is found in, in probably in, in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So when Jesus talks about the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, he's probably referring to this psalm. The right hand of the king being the place of power. 
power and authority. And this is the picture of the Son of Man sitting at that place of authority at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Absolute authority and power, the place of honour. And of course, if you know, know the book of Daniel, you'll, you'll realise that Jesus was very, very clearly referring to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel has this prophetic vision. There before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, another title for God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. So if Jesus, we know, don't we, that Jesus often used the title, the Son of Man. He applied it to to himself as a messianic title. It means a human. But in this context, in in the context of Daniel, it's talking about somebody who's more than just a normal human. It's talking about someone who has divine attributes, somebody who can come into the presence of the Ancient of Days, that is God. And it's clear from their reaction, when Jesus quotes this, he's applying it to himself. Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, that man who spent 30 years of his life in obscurity in a small provincial town, no doubt working in the carpenter's workshop, that man who, you know, the baby born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, the teaching rabbi who, who taught the crowds and did miracles and healed the blind. Jesus said about himself, you know, this, this man, I am that person who will be led into the presence of the Ancient of Days. I am the one who will be given glory, honour and authority. I am the one that all peoples will worship. And I will sit at the right hand of God and my enemies will be made a footstool for my feet. For any human, normal human being, these are blasphemous claims. Wild delusions. Beyond the realms of possibility to think of yourself like this, unless, of course, it were true. Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm the one. Applying it to himself. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That is why the high priest is so scandalised when Jesus speaks these words. He regards it as blasphemy, you know, an offence against God. Look at verse 65, the high priest tore his clothes, you know, it's a Middle Eastern custom of those days to show great anguish. Of course, it was all a show. I don't think the high priest was the least bit bothered about blasphemy. I mean, he'd broken so many rules. He'd he'd sinned against the law and against God, even the way he conducted the trial. And there's no sense of justice at all, but he made this pretense of being scandalized by blasphemy, as though he cared about God and feared God. As far as he was concerned, I'm sure he was secretly pleased and relieved. Finally, they'd been able to pin something on Jesus, this charge of blasphemy. The court had been a success as far as he was concerned. They got the outcome they wanted. You see, don't we, the the blasphemy of a man who purports to to represent God and maintain justice. That's what he's charged to do, righteousness in the land. He accuses Jesus of blasphemy, but he himself is a blasphemer. 
And at the end of all this, what happens? The son of God, God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased, ends up being beaten and mocked and spat upon him, spitting in his face. How much more disrespectful can you be? How blasphemous against the son of man that one day sit at the right hand of God. What do you think? Asked the high priest. He asked for their verdict. And the cry is unanimous. He's worthy of death. In reality, friends, nobody has ever lived who has been less worthy of death than Jesus. He's not just innocent of any wrongdoing, but he's perfectly righteous and holy. And yet they they condemned him as worthy of death because of those true claims that he made about himself. How men hate to hear the truth and hate to hear the verdict against them. I also want to point out, brothers and sisters, that throughout the Gospels, particularly in the last days of Jesus on earth, we see many places where people identify the innocence of Jesus. They recognize the innocence of Jesus. They acknowledge that. So there's Pilate, the Roman governor, who reluctantly sentences Jesus to death. And he, he, he says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. He, he knew Jesus was innocent. He even pleaded with the crowds. He, he appealed to them. He said, look, this is an innocent man. He's done nothing worthy of death. Even this pagan Roman recognized that. And then Pilate's wife had this dream and she warned her husband. She said, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. I've suffered a great deal in a dream about him. The centurion who was among those who guarded Jesus when he was on the cross. When he saw how Jesus died, he said, surely this man was a righteous man. Or surely this man is the son of God, depending on which gospel you read. And even the traitor Judas, whom we heard about recently, he went back to the priests and said, I've betrayed innocent blood. He knew that Jesus had done nothing worthy of death. And yet by then it was too late. So Jesus is innocent. Innocent not just of anything which would cause him to be crucified as a Roman criminal, but innocent of any sin. Nobody could prove anything. There was nothing to prove. And yet a terrible thing happens, doesn't it? Although this this court has been a complete travesty, there's been a miscarriage of justice... Lie upon lie, falsehood upon falsehood, wickedness upon wickedness. Some, for some reason, God allows this verdict to be carried forward. God allows these wicked men to do this to his son. And God doesn't stop it. One of the key verses from Proverbs, which we should all perhaps learn and, and know, is this. Proverbs 17, verse 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. That's how strongly he feels about it when justice is not served, when the innocent are condemned. A great travesty has taken place in the case of Jesus. The holy and righteous one, the son of God, has been condemned by wicked men. Will God stand back? Will will he not act on behalf of his son? Will he not defend the righteous? Will he not vindicate the innocent one. 
when I was preparing this, I was reading Psalm 35, and I really encourage you to read that over the next few days, because this psalm is full of references to unjust sufferings. It's by David, you know, the, the original son of God, not in that divine sense, but God's anointed king, who is being persecuted by his enemies, unjustly accused by wicked men. Read the whole psalm. We've got everything here which corresponds to the trial of Jesus. Ruthless witnesses, falsehoods, slander, mockery, gnashing of teeth. I can imagine the high priest and his cohort were doing that. Hating without reason, which Jesus actually quotes from in John's Gospel. They hated me without a cause. And in this psalm, you've got these plaintive cries to God for deliverance. Verse 17, O Lord, how, will you, how long will you look on? Rescue my life from their ravages. My precious life from these lions. Verse 24. Vindicate me in your righteousness, O Lord my God. That is what happens when a righteous man stands before his enemies and is accused and is persecuted. He cries out to God for deliverance. And yet we don't see any inkling of this, do we? When Jesus stood in that court, he wasn't crying out to God to save him from death at that point. I'm sure... I think I'm, I'm positive throughout his ministry, Jesus had prayed prayers like this, perhaps even in the garden. I mean, he prayed a lot in the garden. We only get a small sense of what he was praying there, recorded for us. But he cried to God to deliver him from death. But it all had to happen this way. The father looked upon this and he allowed it to continue. In a sense, although their, their verdict was completely unjust, look, God honoured that verdict and allowed them to, to carry on with their wicked plans. And the Son of God, Jesus, willingly submitted himself to this. And that's very important. Some people feel, claim that Jesus is some kind of unwilling um, accomplice in this. He doesn't want to be crucified. He doesn't want to die. And in a sense, he doesn't. In his flesh, he knows the terror of that process of being crushed under the weight of God's wrath. But at the same time, Jesus is willing because he's submitted himself to the Father. He's not um, a helpless victim who's desperate to be delivered from this. He goes courageously forward in obedience, perfect submission to the will of his Father. There was another person in the Gospels who recognised the innocence of Jesus. Read about him in Luke 23, the account of the crucifixion in Luke's gospel, when a criminal, one of the two criminals who was crucified next to Jesus, rebukes the other criminal who is mocking Jesus. And he says to him, says to him don't you fear God? We are punished justly, rightly, but we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man pointed to Jesus. Well, he wouldn't, wouldn't be pointing to Jesus, but figuratively pointing to Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. This, this is quite difficult to explain and quite difficult to comprehend, but let me do my best. When Jesus suffered on that cross, it was a travesty. It was unfair. Jesus himself did not deserve to die on that cross. He had done nothing to deserve that. But it's also a supreme example of justice being carried out true and proper righteous justice. Because on that cross, it wasn't just the fact that Jesus died as a criminal. 
died a physical death. But on that cross, something far deeper was going on. A transaction was taking place. God was laying upon his righteous servant the sin of his people. God was pouring out his just and holy anger against human sin and wickedness and rebellion, pouring it out upon his own son. You might think that's terribly unfair on Jesus, but as I just said, Jesus himself was absolutely willing for that to happen and ready. He he agreed to do this willingly because he loved his people and knew it was the only way they could be saved. It's not a case of cosmic child abuse because the second person of the Trinity, God the Son himself, died for his people. God the Son is dying to save his people. God himself is taking the justice, taking the penalty upon himself that our sins deserve. So God takes, God the Father takes the most innocent one who has ever lived, and he has regarded him, the Lord Jesus, as though he was worthy of death. That's what the chief priests accused him. They said he's worthy of death. That was the verdict. And God says, yes, he is worthy of death, not because of his own sin, but because I'm going to count men's sins against him. I'm going to treat him as though he were worthy of death, personally worthy to be punished for all the sin his people had committed. The thief on the cross recognised this man has done nothing wrong. Absolutely true. The thief on the cross recognised, acknowledged that he was the one who deserved to die. Absolutely true. But something on that cross happened that day which made it possible for sinners like you and me to be forgiven. Jesus himself bore the penalty for our sin. This is the gospel. This is the foundation of the gospel. God honoured that verdict and he himself punished his own son who willingly accepted that and went through with that because it was the only way to save you and me. Dear friends, there are only two occasions when God's divine justice will be poured out in that ultimate judgment. One is on the cross That happened in history. And one is future on the day of judgment when sinners who refuse to come to God, to Jesus in repentance and faith, will be cut off from God, will be separated from God and punished with divine wrath in hell. That's what the Bible says. There is grace and mercy for those that turn and believe and put their trust in Jesus. And God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There's no delight in that. And yet his, his righteousness is magnified in justice, in judgment. And on that cross, God was punishing a victim and counting him as though he deserved to die. And that will happen again in a different way on the day of judgment when those who truly deserve to die will be punished. Those who don't turn from their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus. So I believe Jesus did pray to be rescued from death, but not in the manner of other men. If a a man is being persecuted, he calls out to God to deliver him from death because he knows he's going to die. And the way that God would save him would be to stop his enemies from killing him. But the Lord Jesus was delivered from death in a different way. His enemies did the worst they could to him. They killed him, they butchered him, That was the end of him, but it wasn't the end of him because God delivered him from death in the resurrection. Three days later, that temple was rebuilt. Jesus would be vindicated, 
but not before he suffered. He went through that suffering, and after the suffering, then he was vindicated on that resurrection morning. And furthermore, when he, was, he ascended into heaven on the clouds and sat down, he approached the presence of the Ancient of Days, who was led into his presence, and sat down at the right hand of God. Psalm 35, verse 25, talks about the enemies of God, the enemies of God's, of God's servant mocking him, claiming they'd won the victory over him. Verse 25, aha, just what we wanted, we've swallowed him up. But with Jesus, although his enemies thought they had, had got rid of him, and vanquished him, swallowed him up, that was not to be the case. One day the tables would be turned. Jesus himself alludes to that. When he talks about the Son of Man, they would see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven as judge. They would see that. All flesh will see that. Every person that's ever lived will see that. The Lord Jesus himself will come with a trumpet sound, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise. And all will rise, actually, to be judged. One day, you and I will see him, too, in his glory. Question for us, when the Lord Jesus comes, as he described, will we stand before him as his holy people who've who've made peace with him, who've been reconciled to him, who've worshipped him willingly? Will we stand before him and welcome him and say, come Lord Jesus and, and delight in his coming? Or will we have the terror of facing our judge and king, as he comes in his power to execute judge, justice, to make his enemies his footstool, will, will we be found among his enemies that will be vanquished and defeated? Dear friends, many people, like those high priests, like that wicked trial, that court, are not even willing to countenance the idea that Jesus could actually be telling the truth, that he could be the saviour, the messiah, the Christ, the son of God. They just reject it, point blank. No inclination to even consider his claims. And they, they hate him without a cause, they just want to get rid of him. They want him gone at all costs. How about you? If you're not a believer listening to this, you know, you might have just stumbled upon it. Why do you hate the Lord Jesus so much if you do? Why do you want to get rid of him? What crime has he committed that you should hate him so? And do you not even, is there not even a small part of you that believes these words that one day you will see him coming and then you will have to face the judgment? Dear friends, the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross, he took the punishment that you and I deserve. Sounds like a very familiar thing that Christians say, but this is exactly what the Bible teaches. You know, the righteous, the righteous one, you know, the son of God became a curse for us. He was cut off for us, for our sake, for our sins, that he might make us the righteousness of God. I started this, this sermon tonight with a question. What could be worse than being tried in an unjust human court? Corrupt court that wants to, to take your life unjustly. I put it to you that 
there is one thing worse than that, and that is to stand in the court of God before a just, perfectly just, holy God, the, the judge of all the earth, and stand before him guilty, not falsely accused, but rightly accused. Dear friends, there are lots of things in our lives which are not right. And there are lots of things in our lives which may be hidden and secret. But on that day, there will be no secrets. The books will be opened. And there will be a huge mountain of evidence against us of how we've broken God's law. The law itself stands against us. God's holy law that we've broken in so many different ways. And there will be enough evidence to convict us and to, to, for God to throw us into hell and judge us completely and cut us off from his presence. How fearful that would be to stand before God, not in front of some little group of, of men who are playing their power games, but to stand in front of the God of all the earth and have to give account to him. Every mouth on that day will be, be silenced because there will be nothing to say, no defence, no one to speak for us. That's what we deserve, and God will be honoured in judgment. And yet, for those that have believed in the Lord Jesus, for those that, like that thief on the cross, acknowledge that he is righteous, we are sinful, we get what we deserve, he's getting what he doesn't deserve, and actually he suffered for me in my place. For those that believe that and put their trust in the Lord Jesus on that day, there will be one who speaks for us in that courtroom. There will be one who stands up. I can imagine him showing his scars, his hands and his feet, and saying, this one belongs to me. This is one of mine. This is one that I died for, shed my blood for. And there's no accusation anymore against them. There's no condemnation. They're innocent in in the sight of God. Their sins have been dealt with. Their sins have been atoned for, taken away. I have taken them upon myself and now they're free to go. They're innocent. And God will honour that. Dear friends, I want us tonight to ponder Jesus went through that unjust trial. He didn't defend himself. He didn't try to save himself because he knew the only way to save us from the great courtroom of God, from the, the, the guilty verdict, was by taking that upon himself, the penalty for our sin. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder that you suffered, the Lord Jesus suffered in our place because of his great love, because he wanted to save a people for himself that would praise him and say, worthy is the lamb. Help us, Lord, to appreciate more the sufferings of our Lord Jesus, not just the physical sufferings, but the the horror of being cut off from you so that we, your people, would not have to be cut off from you, of being under the, the full weight of the law, the wrath of God that we deserve. It was me and my sin that put him on that, on that cross. And yet, because of him, because of his work, there is forgiveness, there is grace, and there is no condemnation. Pray, Lord, for anyone listening to this tonight who's not yet a believer, who is facing that court of God, your holy judgment day, 
still guilty in their sin. I pray that today they would put their trust in the Lord Jesus and say, have mercy on me. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you paid the price I could never pay, except by spending an eternity in hell. You, you drank the cup of God's wrath for me, so I would not have to drink it. Please forgive us, Lord, if we are, we are those who are, uh, condemned the Lord Jesus or rejected him. And help us, Lord, rather to seek mercy at, at the throne of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing the final hymn song, which is We Fall Down. And it's also based on Revelation. And after what we've heard tonight, I pray that we would use this song to reflect on our Lord Jesus and to worship him, actually, to come before him and say, holy, holy, holy. Thank you for being with us tonight. If you have any questions, please contact us. The Lord bless you all. Thank you.